Well, please open your Bible to Isaiah uh, chapter 6. Isaiah is pretty much smack bang in the middle of the Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, if you're new with us, the words will also be on the screen behind me. So you're welcome to follow along there as well. As we come to the question of what's God like and think about His holiness, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 6, the first eight verses. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Amen. Well, show of hands, uh, who here has been to Europe? All right, put your hands down, no need to show off. Uh, I've, I've never been to Europe myself, uh, but I know that one of, the, one of the main attractions in Europe is its history of great empires, of terrible wars, of breathtaking architecture. And in particular, Europe is home to a staggering amount of churches and cathedrals, some of the greatest that mankind has ever built. Now, these cathedrals look very different to what churches look like today, don't they? And it's interesting to ask why that is. Why are the ceilings so incredibly high? Why is it designed so that the light pierces the darkness the way it does? Why are there so many intricate frescoes and beautiful stained glass windows and ornate decorations? Why do they have spires that reach into the sky? The Lincoln Cathedral in England is 160 meters high. Why is the pulpit so high and elevated and large? And why do they have such hard wooden pews? Well, if you research the architecture of these cathedrals, you'll discover that every one of those features was intentionally designed to communicate something, and in particular to communicate something about God. You know, 
before a word has been spoken from the front, you walk into one of these buildings and you learn something about who God is, about who you're worshipping. What do you learn? Well, that He's a transcendent God, a majestic God, a God who you worship with awe and with trembling. Today, if you walk into a contemporary church, you're unlikely to draw the same conclusions about God. Times have changed. Uh, Today, many buildings and services are more likely to draw attention to the approachability of God, uh, to His love, to His grace, to His warm welcome. The goal is often to reach the lost and welcome them in. Which approach do you think is right? Which view of God is correct? Yes. I would say yes. God is transcendent and God is our closest friend. God fills us with awe and God melts our hearts with his gentle compassion. But as we, as we navigate that tension and seek to keep a healthy balance, we would do well to recognize the natural leaning of our times. These days, I think you would agree, the holiness of God is increasingly downplayed and even overlooked. Why might that be? I think there'd be lots of different reasons we could come up with. Perhaps holiness sits uncomfortably in our individualistic Western society. We kind of don't like authority. Maybe God's holiness for some is in conflict with His love and His grace. Maybe if we focus on holiness, it feels like it's unhelpful and off-putting for evangelism. Or maybe we feel that God's holiness is, is sort of less important to focus on now that we're forgiven, we're justified. Maybe we just like to avoid God's holiness because it's so uncomfortable and it exposes our own sin. I'm sure you could come up with many other reasons as well. But here's the thing. God's Word tells us unequivocally, God is holy And to understand that is vitally important. Uh, In his famous uh, easy-to-read book, which I'd recommend to you, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, it's a classic, he says this, I am convinced that the holiness of God is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. Uh, For example, Sproul points out that God's holiness is actually the first priority of the Lord's Prayer. How does it begin? Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, may your name be regarded as holy. Everything else flows from that central priority. So, tonight we're back at last in our Living Theology Sermon Series. Uh, We're thinking about what God's like, and in particular tonight, we're thinking about what it means for God to be holy and what His holiness would mean for us in our lives. Will it be a slightly uncomfortable topic? Yes, I suspect so. But like bitter medicine that leads to healing, the confronting truth about God's holiness will actually lead us, I think, to an even sweeter experience of His mercy and His love. So let's begin. Let's turn to Isaiah 6, where we encounter a rare 
an amazing vision of God. And as we look at this vision, we've got three points this evening. And our first is simply this, a holy God. A holy God. Isaiah 6 begins with these words. In the year that King Isaiah died. Uh, and we know uh, from 2 Chronicles 26 that Isaiah was a king uh, of Judah who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, which is great. Well, he did it first. Later in his life, we read that after Isaiah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Uh, one day, Isaiah waltzes into the temple where only the priests were allowed to go and he burnt incense on the altar. Was that an act of worship? I think it was quite the opposite. It was actually an act of arrogant disrespect for God. And so the priests come in and they confront Isaiah. He gets in a nasty rage and then is stopped in his tracks as leprosy suddenly breaks out on his forehead. And then he's led out of the temple in disgrace and he has to live with that terribly contagious skin disease for the rest of his life, separated not only from God and the temple, but from all the people. It's, it's a humiliating story. A mighty king is ruined in an instant because he lost sight of the holiness of God. And that is the backstory to our passage in Isaiah 6. Isaiah has died. The throne is empty. Israel's stability gives way to uncertainty, and yet at that very moment, Isaiah has a vision. Verse 1, I saw the Lord. <laughs> How utterly terrifying. I don't think we should be flippant about wanting to see God. Uh, it could be heart-stoppingly traumatic. What does Isaiah see? Well, Isaiah might be dead, it might be election time in Israel, but the Lord is high and exalted, seated on a throne. You see, it turns out there's more than one throne in Israel. Someone is still reigning in glory and power. And this king is so high and enormous that the whole temple is filled with just the hem of his robe. Just the hem. And the temple can barely even contain it. I mean, how, how enormous must that throne be? How far up is Isaiah going to have to crane his neck to see the one who sits on it? And then verse 2, Isaiah sees that above God were seraphim, uh, strange heavenly creatures who live in God's court. Each creature has six wings. It says, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Why so many wings? Well, these creatures are actually perfectly designed with shields to guard them from the all-consuming holiness of God. Two wings to cover their eyes, because to look directly at God would destroy them. Two wings to cover their feet, probably the part of the body representing modesty and, and just their creatureliness. They might be sinless beings, these seraphim, but, but God is in a whole league of his own. 
What do they do? Well, it's their full-time job for eternity to sing the praises of God. Verse 3, they call to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. Why, why is it repeated three times? Well, today, if you wanted to emphasize something, you might uh, put it in bold or in italics or in capital letters. Uh, but in Hebrew, they used repetition for emphasis. You remember Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, listen up. I'm about to say something particularly important. But to repeat a word three times, that's next level. That is the superlative. And did you know that in all the Bible, the only attribute of God that is repeated three times is holy. Yes, God is love. Yes, God is justice. But God is holy, holy, holy. It's really important that we grasp the significance of this. You see, holiness is not just another attribute of God. I'll say that again. Holiness is not just another attribute of God. Uh, R.C. Sproul, again, he writes this. When the word holy is applied to God, it does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. The word is used as a synonym for his deity, That's to be God. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is holy spirit. End quote. So what does it mean for God to be holy? Well, first and foremost, it means that He is completely other, set apart, transcendent. We often think that God's holiness refers to Him being morally perfect, and, that, and that's part of it, but it's not the main idea. Holiness is primarily about God being God. I am who I am. Uh, completely independent and, and self-existent. He has no beginning or end. He just exists. Uh, he doesn't just have a lot of power. He is power. He doesn't just have a lot of love. He is love. Uh, and this is hard for us. This idea of God being in a completely separate, transcendent category from everything else is, is harder, I think, for us to understand. Uh, James Boyce says, we sometimes think of holiness as kind of being like a scale from zero to a hundred. Uh, and down one end of the scale, you've got the really bad people. You know, you've got the dictators and the murderers and the rapists. And, and yep, they score quite badly. And then you come to the really good people, and they're pretty well up the scale. Uh, your Mother Teresa's, your philanthropists. They, they don't get a perfect score, because they're not, maybe not quite as good as they could be, but they're, they're pretty good. And then if you go all the way to 100, you come to God. But throughout the Bible, we learn that God's goodness isn't just a perfect version of human goodness. His goodness exists in a category all of its own. Uh, trying to compare ourselves to Him is, is like trying to work out which disposable plastic knife is the strongest and the sharpest. 
uh, when God is a drop-forged stainless steel chef's knife. The holiness of God leads us into the very essence of who God is. He is a divine being who exists outside of our imaginations, our own comprehension, our own control. A divine being with no leash, with no on or off switch, with no limitations. When we have the traumatic privilege of of seeing God's holiness, as Isaiah did, we discover that He defines all reality. We discover that from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. So he's, He's not a friend who you decide to hang out with. He's not a teacher who you might decide to learn from. He's not a leader who you might decide to follow. He's not just interesting or worth investigating or worth listening to. He's not someone who you choose to serve or follow if it benefits you, if if you decide he has something you need. No, he is holy God. You don't stand next to a roaring fire and then decide whether or not you'll let it warm you. You don't jump into icy water and decide whether or not it will be cold. And neither do you come to God and choose how you will define Him or how you will worship Him or how you will serve Him. And poor Isaiah, he realizes all of that in one utterly terrifying instant. As the seraphim proclaim the utter holiness of God Almighty, the doorposts and the thresholds shake and the temple fills with smoke. What does Isaiah do? What, what would you do? Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This brings us to our second point. We've seen a holy God. Now second, we see an unholy people. A holy God and unholy people. Isaiah actually pronounces a curse on himself right there and then. Woe to me. And then he adds, I'm ruined or literally I am undone. And to quote R.C. Sproul again, he says, As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character the instant he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed. Morally and spiritually annihilated, he was undone, he came apart, his sense of integrity collapsed. End quote. See, this God, who we were actually made to know and to love and to enjoy, he terrifies us. to the point that we would rather die than be in His presence. Why? Because He is utterly holy and we are utterly sinful. Perhaps you want to push back at this point. Utterly sinful? That is a bit harsh. I know I'm not perfect, 
but I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm a decent person and God sees that and God knows that. He knows that I'm trying. You know, if I'm honest, most of the time I'm not like Isaiah, overwhelmed by my utter sinfulness. I often feel like I'm doing pretty okay and I'm often also quite uncomfortable about the thought of God's justice and God's wrath. Maybe you can relate to that. That's exactly why we need to recognize God's holiness. Before we accuse God of being harsh or or unjust, we need to think seriously about the problem of our own sin. We might like to think we're not so bad, uh, but Francis Schaeffer once said, imagine if you went your whole life with a tape recorder hanging around your neck. And every time you made any sort of moral judgment, like, oh, they should, or, or you should, it recorded what you said. Schaefer says if that happened, we would quickly discover that we can't even live up to our own standards. We can't even meet our own invented moral code, let alone God's standards. But you say, well, what about the good things that we do? What about when we give to the poor, for example? Isn't that a good deed? Uh, R.C. Sproul responds, yes and no. It is good in the sense that our outward act conforms to what God commands. But for a good deed to pass the standard of God's goodness, it must flow out of a heart that loves God perfectly and loves our neighbor perfectly as well. The logic of the Bible is this, since no one has a perfect heart, no one does a perfect deed. And that does seem to be what Isaiah realizes when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He knows that his speech is less than pure and he seems to realize that 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 represents the fact that his whole heart is unclean and impure. Jesus said, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our, Our actions and our hearts are directly linked. And you remember what Jesus told us, that the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our hearts. If that's the greatest commandment, then surely the greatest sin is to fail to do that. And if that's the bar, then I think R.C. Sproul is right. Since no one has a perfect heart, no one does a perfect deed. Or as Dane Ortland puts it in Gentle and Lowly, If sin were the color blue, we do not occasionally say or do something blue. All that we say, do and think has some taint of blue. Maybe not as blue as it could be, but there's blue in there. We try to justify ourselves and say, it wasn't that blue. And when we do that, we show that our view of God is is far too small. The old Puritan Thomas Brooks, this famous quote, There are no little sins, because there is no little God to sin against. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
to, to ignore this God, to challenge this God, to disobey this God. In fact, to be anything less than absolutely and completely captivated and delighted by this God is to commit a sin of cosmic proportions, a sin that actually deserves instant death. As Isaiah quakes before this holy God, his question is not, Oh, God, how is it fair that you give sinners the death sentence? But how is God so merciful that he has not already obliterated me and my people from the face of the earth? That is where the holiness of God should drive us. We should be amazed not by his justice, but by his grace, not by his wrath, but by his patience. And just as all of that dawns on Isaiah, something even more amazing happens in verse 6. Have a look there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That brings us to our third and final point. We've, we've glimpsed a holy God. We've been undone by the realization that we're an unholy people. Now, finally, we see God's holy love. God's holy love. Instead of dying instantly because of his sin, the, the opposite happens. Isaiah's guilt is taken away. It, it's probably not a painless process. It required a burning coal to touch his lips. But surprisingly, it actually leads to his restoration, not his ruin. You know, Satan is whispering in the ear of the world, that when we confess our sins, it leads to humiliation and self-hate. In fact, the opposite is true. Those who admit their sin before God are, are cleansed. The burden is actually lifted. We discover that there's actually beautiful freedom and forgiveness. Notice God deals specifically with Isaiah's sin problem. He touches the coal to his mouth, to his unclean lips. And then in the next verse, God will take those purified lips and use him to be his servant, to be a spokesman to Israel. It's an amazing display of mercy and love. But where did that mercy and love come from? Didn't we just say that God is a holy God who hates sin? Yes, we did. But remember that holiness is not just one of God's attributes. Remember, all God's attributes are holy. His justice is holy. It's divine. It's perfect. It's glorious. His wrath is holy. It's, it's perfect. It's divine. It's glorious. And likewise, His love and His mercy are holy. They're perfect divine and glorious. In other words, God's justice and God's love are not in conflict. They don't contradict 
each other. They actually fit together perfectly under the umbrella of God's holiness. And if you doubt that, well, have a look again at verse 6 and see where the burning coal came from. It comes from the altar. Isaiah's sin is not swept under the carpet. We're told it was atoned for, it was paid for. Here's the question. How can a holy God punish sin and let sinners go free? That's the question. And only the cross of Jesus Christ can answer that, right? For some, the cross is just a beautiful display of God's love. It's the ultimate example of of sacrifice and compassion and kindness. But holy love is only one side of the story. It's only one reason Jesus died for us. The other side of the coin is the holy justice of God. Someone must pay that debt. Someone who's perfectly righteous. Someone who perfectly meets God's incredibly high standards. And that's the wonder of the cross. That the holy, transcendent God is the very one who draws near and is burned on the altar in our place. Justice is done and salvation is won And it's all from the Holy One. And that's why I'm proclaiming the cross to you this evening. And I'm holding it out to you as as possibly the single greatest event in all of human history. And I hope the most significant thing in your life too. Because at the cross, the holiness of God is displayed, is revealed most fully. A holy God who cannot tolerate a single particle of sin. And a holy God who overflows with love and mercy towards those who've committed treason against him. And in the words of that old hymn, at the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. And this is why we cannot and we must not ever lose sight of the staggering holiness of God. It's central to understanding the whole thing. Only His holiness can explain why He's the transcendent God worthy of, of all worship and praise and glory. Only His holiness can explain why sin runs wide in our universe and deep in our hearts. And only His holiness can explain why every one of us do indeed deserve the eternal torments of hell. And only His holiness can explain the true meaning of the cross where justice and love find their fullest expression in the righteous Son of God slain for us. And only His holiness can explain our deepest calling and purpose in life that we would one day be with the Holy God and that He would be with us And that we, with unveiled faces, will behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into His image. 
So I'm not saying uh, that we necessarily need to contact Board of Management and build a 50 metre tall spire on the top of our building. But I am saying that we should be careful never to shrink our fearsome God into something that can be contained, something cute or cuddly. Only as we remember that our God is holy, 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 will we truly appreciate the beauty of his justice and his love. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, you are holy, holy, holy. We barely know what that means, Lord, except that you are utterly better and bigger and other than we are. Your love is supreme. Your justice is impeccable. Your glory is untold. The whole earth is full of it, and it doesn't even come close to showing who you are. And Lord, in your presence, we are undone. Our, our best works are filthy rags. Our best days are, are embarrassing compared to your holiness. And we admit that now, and we want to humble ourselves. Lord, for any of us who, who haven't done that yet, who are still holding out that we're basically pretty good, Lord, show us the truth. Not so that we would be ruined and undone, but ultimately so that we would be restored to your presence so that we would find the gift of love and forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. Please fill us with confidence to approach the throne of grace and find mercy in our time of need. Thank you for Jesus and that through him we can come to a holy God and live with him forever, face to face, beholding his glory and becoming more and more like him. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.